Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 30 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today, my friend. There's tons and tons of video game content out there, so I appreciate you taking a chance on us and checking out the show. If you've been with us on one of our Wildlands expeditions before, you know the drill. Dee, our canine expedition leader, will be around momentarily to greet you all and give you the usual sniffing of the leg, as it were. If you're new to the show, just remain still as Dee Dee makes his rounds. After he administers an obligatory sniffing, a scratch behind the ears is all he'll need and you can consider yourself part of the crew. I don't really know why our leader does what he does, but I don't dare question his methods and nor should you. On today's episode, we're going to be traveling through time to the not-so-distant future of a dystopian 1999. Or is it the not-so-distant past? Anyway. During this time, violence and destruction are no longer things we hear about on the news because we get this sort of thing another way. These are things we actually seek out on our television sets and the networks are cashing in on our bloodlust. Of all the types of shows out there, the game show continues to be the most popular. Game shows in this day and age are dominating the ratings due to their ultra-violence. And there's one show that has more than earned the title of Most Violent Show of All Time. In this show, two lucky contestants compete for cash and prizes. Each contestant is armed with an assortment of powerful weapons and sent into a closed-off arena where they'll have to fight off human and inhuman opponents in a fight to stay alive. The action takes place in front of a live studio audience and is broadcast live via satellite all around the world. In this show, to the victor go the spoils. To the loser, death. The show that I'm talking about is Smash TV, and today we're checking out the game Super Smash TV on the Super Nintendo. Curtis over on our Facebook page had suggested I check out Super Smash TV a while ago, and I decided to give the game a go. It's a game that I like to think is fairly popular among retro gamers. I've certainly heard of it before, but I've never had the pleasure of playing it. Well, that's come to an end, and in this episode, I'll be sharing with you my experiences and thoughts. I didn't realize until I started really researching this game that Super Smash TV was just Smash TV, and originally released in arcades. Smash TV would later be ported to a ton of other systems, including the original Nintendo Entertainment System, the Sega Genesis, the Game Gear, Commodore 64, the Amiga, and a few others. In the arcades, Smash TV started off as a twin joystick shooter, where the left joystick was used for movement and the right joystick was used for shooting. Games like that nowadays are called twin stick shooters, since most modern controllers and handhelds have two thumbsticks on them to simulate the joysticks of yesteryear. But how can a twin stick shooter made in the early 90s work on home consoles where controllers weren't really set up to accommodate this sort of playstyle? Well, developers got creative, and the creativity certainly paid off. 
I spent my time primarily with the Super Nintendo version of the game, which is the version I'll be speaking to the most, but I'm sure I'll touch on some of the other ports of the game as we go. I had a pretty good time with this game, even if it made me a little frustrated at times. So get yourself settled in by the campfire, and I will tell you all about it in due time. If you're new to the show, I usually like to take some time now to give everyone a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. Every episode is different, but I'll usually talk about things like how the podcast itself is doing, what games I might be playing, what projects I might be working on. I may read any comments from the community I happen to have, if any are sent over about the game that we're talking about, or whatever else I feel like rambling about. I figure if you're joining us on our Wildlands expedition, I'd offer up a glimpse into the inner workings. Every successful team has to know where it's going, right? But if none of this sounds interesting to you and you just want to get to the Super Smash TV talk, no worries, you can skip ahead about five to seven minutes. All you have to do is keep your ears open for the music and you should be there. Or you can check out the show description where I've loaded timestamps telling you exactly where you need to go. So if you're listening to this episode the week it launches, I'll be traveling to San Antonio, Texas for a week for my adult job. I've never been to Texas before, and I am pretty eager to check out the city when I get there. I'll be fairly close to the Alamo and definitely checking that out, but I'm pretty excited to see whatever else might be out there. That is, whenever I have downtime, which I probably will not have a ton of. I do know I want to see if I can find any retro gaming stores out that way, and hopefully come back with something new to add to my gaming collection. I can't remember the name of it offhand, but there's a place I found within 30 minutes or so of where I'm staying. If you happen to live in the San Antonio area or have visited there before, let me know what I should be checking out. I'm going to try to share my sites and travels on our social media channels if any of that sounds interesting to anyone, so check us out on social to see what I may be up to next week. I was never really good about doing any of that sort of stuff in general, but I'm still trying to use social media more. And given the amount of work that I'll be doing this week, I'm probably going to be a little on the slower side when it comes to interacting with posts and responding to DMs in general, so just bear that in mind. All in all, while it is for work, I am pretty excited to check out somewhere that I've never been, so it should be a good time. Since I won't have my usual time needed to make a podcast episode, edit it, and upload it, I've made it a point to get one made ahead of time that I can schedule and drop next Thursday. That is, if everything goes the way that I want it to. I am planning to drop Parasite Eve 2 as our next episode while I'm away. Many months ago, I put together a rather lengthy video review of PE2, but I never finished it and uploaded it to our YouTube channel. The plan is to take the script from that review and repurpose it into a podcast episode. Now, in theory, it should make the process much quicker for me, but we'll have to see if my plans actually work out. I am still a one-man band when it comes to everything I'm doing with the show and other projects attached to it, and I'm pretty insistent on that quality piece. For those of you who've been with us for a while now, I really do appreciate your continued support while I keep trying to figure all this stuff out. And if you're a newcomer, thanks for giving my show a chance. I I really do appreciate it. In other news, I'm trying to make it a point to check out as many gaming conventions and expos as I reasonably can this year. Late last year, my wife and I checked out the Torg Gaming Expo in Columbus, Ohio, and we had a pretty good time. 
It was my very first expo, and now that I've had a taste of the experience, I absolutely want more. I just bought tickets for the Cleveland Gaming Classic that's going down the weekend of September 22nd this year. It's being held at the IX Center in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm only planning to head out there on Saturday as opposed to the entire weekend, but I'm expecting to have a really good time. I'm not personally one to join in any gaming tournaments or anything like that, but I'll certainly be checking out some of that action while I'm on the hunt for some new things to add to my gaming collection. And I'll certainly be looking for opportunities to spread the word about the podcast there as well. I had these 2x2-inch business cards for the show made up a little while ago, and a family friend was nice enough to make my wife and I a couple of Retro Wildlands hoodies, so I'm hoping to see if I can get more people joining up with our expeditions. If it's the future and you happen to be listening to this and I met you at the Cleveland Gaming Classic, hello, and thanks for checking us out. I'm more than likely going to stick around Ohio this year as far as conventions go, so if you know of any that I should check out, hit me up on social media and let me know. And if you happen to be going to some of the same expos that I end up going to, I hope I get a chance to meet you and say hi. That'd be pretty cool. Speaking of social media, let me plug that really quick. We have a presence over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All you have to do is search at Retro Wildlands and you should be able to find us. Following us on social media is the easiest way to see what's going on with the show and interact with it if that is something that interests you. Usually on the weekends, I'll announce what show is coming up on our next episode and give you all a chance to chime in about it or drop any sort of question or comment you want to have read on the show, at which point I'll respond as well. Our social channels grow ever so slightly week after week, and I am humbled that anyone wants to have my content on your timelines and feeds, so a huge thank you to anyone who's already checked us out. I've been having some fantastic conversations with people on posts and even through direct messages, and it has been awesome getting to know all of you. So again, feel free to check us out on social media. Oh, and before I forget, if you end up liking the show and want to show it or myself some support, please consider leaving us a good review on your podcasting platform if you can. Good reviews will help circulate the show, and if nothing else, you'll be making me feel good. No obligation or anything, I certainly want to earn your good review and the time that you take to post them, but I'd appreciate it if you'd at least consider it. Alright, I think that's all I've got for this week. It's time to get to the reason that you are all here. It is time to talk about Super Smash TV. Curtis over on our Facebook page chimed in about a reference in this game that I completely missed. He said, I'll never forget the RoboCop reference right before a boss battle. I'd buy that for a dollar! It always echoed in my brain and really stuck with me over the years. While I talk in the episode about my love for 80s movies, I am ashamed to admit that I have not watched RoboCop yet. But when I jumped online and figured out where that line popped up in the RoboCop movie, I recognized it immediately. It's an absolute classic, and I think there are other one-liners in Smash TV that are pop culture references as well. That's something I really appreciate about video games in general, just finding and discovering these references. So thank you, Curtis, for adding even more flavor to my Smash TV experience. I really do appreciate it, my friend, and thank you again for writing in. 
Originally released in arcades back in 1990 and then ported to a bunch of consoles around 1992, Super Smash TV is a no-holds-barred, do-or-die adventure. Competing in front of a live studio audience and viewable all around the world, one or two contestants must shoot their way to fortune and glory. Our contestants will be put against all manner of opponents whose strength is that of sheer numbers. They'll need to keep moving and need to keep shooting in order to keep advancing in the arena. Fabulous prizes await if they can be grabbed, but the best prize one can claim is keeping their own lives. Because if you lose this game, you lose your life. But if you can win, unimaginable riches and fame are yours for the taking. So what's it going to be? Well, that is going to be up to us. So suit up, Wildlanders. Grab your machine guns, throw on your helmets, and limber up. You're the next lucky contestant on Super Smash TV. As someone who was born in the mid-80s, I consider myself somewhat lucky. While it might seem obvious from the video game side of things given my upbringing with the Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and eventually the PlayStation, I also consider myself lucky that I was born around the time of some pretty awesome movies. I am pretty confident that if I was never introduced to video games, movies would have become my passion. Some of my favorite movies are 80s flicks. For instance, we have Predator, which was released in 1987, Aliens, released in 1986, Terminator in 84, the year that I was born, The Breakfast Club in 85, Top Gun, which is my absolute favorite in 1986, Roadhouse in 1989, and The Running Man in 1987. There are many more, but these are the big ones that immediately come to mind. There's a lot of reasons I love these films, but the big sticking point for me has always been the fact that the 80s were just a simpler time in film. There was hardly any CGI or fancy graphics, movie writing was creative, and actors and actresses relied more on their raw talent to relay a good story than any other sort of visual flair. And I argue that I remember more about the plots and characters of older movies than I do about the modern ones that I see today. And when I say it like that, I think the same can be said about the older retro video games of yesterday as well. The fun thing about what I'm doing with the podcast is I'm going back and playing a ton of older games that I missed out on, but really when I look at them all, I'm aware of more retro games and what they're all about than I am most modern games. And that blows my mind because I haven't really played a ton of older games. So how is that possible? I argue it's the same philosophy I just applied to why 80s movies are so good. 
Older games were afforded more creativity, and they just have a character about them that modern games have a hard time touching. But you know what really has the potential to really catapult a retro game up the ranks of memorability and fun factor? Taking a proven movie concept and adapting it to a fun gameplay experience. Enter Smash TV. Originally released in arcades in 1990, this twin joystick shooter was very reminiscent of older 80s movie tropes. Specifically, Smash TV seemingly took inspiration from the Arnold Schwarzenegger film The Running Man. While The Running Man did pretty mediocre at the box office when it was released back in 87 and reviews were mostly average, I really like this film personally. The movie is set in a dystopian United States where the most popular thing at the time is a television show where convicted criminals are filmed before a live studio audience fighting for their lives and potentially their freedom against professional killers trying to take their lives, all for the sake of entertainment. But it is much more involved than that. The United States has become a police state following a huge economic collapse. As a way to pacify the general public, they show them violent TV shows that are full of criminals and all sorts of lowlives fighting for their lives. If the contestants of the show can somehow make it out alive, they'll be granted a pardon from the government and prizes beyond their imaginations. It sounds like an interesting concept, right? It is pretty interesting when you think about it. Smash TV more or less takes that concept from Running Man and distills it down to video game form. I've never played this game before a couple weeks ago, but as soon as I sat down with it, I was immediately hit with all the 80s vibes. The entire concept reminded me of The Running Man, and the guns and violence reminded me of movies like The Terminator and Predator. Needless to say, I was drawn in almost immediately. Now, before we start picking this game apart, I want to point out that I played the Super Nintendo version of this game called Super Smash TV. After the game was released in arcades, it enjoyed a plethora of ports. I mentioned these all in the intro, but this game was released on the original Nintendo, the SNES, the Game Gear, Sega Master System, the Genesis, Commodore 64, the Amiga, and a couple others. This game was quite literally everywhere, but for this episode, what I will speak to will be primarily my Super Nintendo experience. I was fortunate enough to play a little bit of the original Nintendo version of the game, and the core concept of that game is pretty much intact all across the board, so I think this podcast will cover most of the different ports out there just by proxy. I really had no idea that this game was everywhere like it is, and it made playing this game that much more exciting. So, without further ado, let's pick apart Super Smash TV and see what this game is really all about. So, what is this game? I think the best way to set the table is to refer to the opening text crawl that plays when you boot the game up. Give me a moment to let me adopt my inner video game host and give it a read. The year is 1999. Television has adopted to the more violent nature of man. The most popular form of television remains the game show. One show in particular has dominated the ratings. That show is Smash TV, the most violent game show of all time. 
Two lucky contestants compete for cash and prizes. Each contestant is armed with an assortment of powerful weapons and sent into a closed arena. The action takes place in front of a studio audience and is broadcast live via satellite all around the world. Be prepared. The future is now. You are the next lucky contestant. Woo! Audience noises. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much the long and the short of it. Right before the opening text crawl that I just read and probably the worst game show voice I've ever done, we're met with the image of our two lucky contestants that I will affectionately call Blue Guy and Red Guy standing on top of a pile of money with weapons in hand. It seems like fame and glory await, but really, the prize on the line is something much more precious. Your life. This game isn't about winning or losing, this game is about kill or be killed. The contestants are armed to the teeth, but the opposition will be fierce. And while they may be lacking in sheer strength and firepower overall, they do outnumber you to the point that it is not even fair. Your opponents will be a mix of human as well as inhuman enemies. It's going to take everything that you have to see yourself a winner in this game. But if you can play your cards right and fight with all you have, you might even see yourself crowned as one of Smash TV's grand champions. Sounds enticing, right? I mean, what's not to love? This game has buff shirtless dudes with guns, there's cash prizes lying all over the place, and an audience that's cheering you on. This game is as fun as it sounds, believe me. That is, until you find out just how hard this game can actually be. So the concept of Super Smash TV is a pretty straightforward one. Either alone or with a friend, you'll need to fight through three different arenas, each with a big bad at the end that you have to defeat in order to move on. Along the way, you'll need to wipe out all enemies in each room in order to move on to the next one. You have the ability to choose what rooms that you go through to an extent, but ultimately, you're making your way towards the exit. Not only do you want to stay alive to make it towards the end, there's plenty of opportunity to rack up as high a score as you can. And there's more. If you make the right moves, you'll be able to uncover treasure rooms with tons of prizes, hidden secret rooms, and if you're able to collect enough keys, you have the potential to unlock the Pleasure Dome, where the prizes are really out of this world. Now before we jump into the game and see if we can survive the first arena, we should probably get a feel for how we can defend ourselves and what potential power-ups we might find along the way that are going to help us. The nice thing about Super Smash TV is that the game is going to be fairly generous with the tools it provides us, so let's take a moment and get acquainted, shall we? For starters, our default weapon is a machine gun. It's fully automatic and fairly useful for what it is. Many of the lesser enemies will fall within one hit, and it's really great for keeping the swarm of baddies at bay. However, if there are too many baddies, they still may overwhelm us as the fire rate on our fully automatic machine gun isn't all that great. Really, we're going to need bigger guns to see ourselves to victory. The bosses at the end of each stage will definitely shrug off our machine gun fire, so we'll need to make sure we're grabbing the better stuff. One weapon you're going to find is the grenade launcher. This automatic weapon will spew out grenades right in front of you. 
The range is relatively short, and the grenades explode rather quickly, but this weapon is perfect against mechanical opponents and other slow-moving baddies. The spreader is a nice weapon to get your hands on as well. Shooting it will fire bullets out in front of you in sets of three. A bullet right in front of you, and then two more bullets off to the sides in kind of a 45-degree angle sort of fashion. It's not quite as powerful as the spread gun from Contra, but these extra bullets are fantastic for crowd control, especially when you're facing a swarm of enemies closing in on your position. The rocket launcher does what the name implies, but the cool thing about this weapon is that the rockets can fly through the air, and they will automatically travel through lesser enemies and take them out as it goes. And most other enemies that are bigger usually perish in one hit. This weapon is great for clearing a room if you just strafe side to side and let the rockets fly. The grenade lobber weapon is about as powerful as the rocket launcher, but the way it works is it tosses these bigger grenades up and over about half the length of the screen before falling and exploding on impact. I'm not a huge fan of this weapon personally, but if you can line up your shots just right, you'll do some massive damage. The grenade lobber will only appear when you're facing down the bosses of the arena that you're in, so bear that in mind in case you're not seeing one and wonder where the hell that thing is. It is exceptionally useful against the second area boss, a creature known as Scarface, so if you'd see one of those lying around, definitely make it a point to pick one up. The last extra weapon that you can come across is the Orbiting Orb. This helpful little guy will circle around your character and act like a second gun. When you fire your gun, the orb will fire as well. It's a great way to double your firepower in a hurry. It'll stay floating around you until it makes contact with an enemy, or you happen to get yourself killed. If you happen to be using one of the special weapons that I just listed, the orb will fire that type of ammo as well, so that can really amplify your firepower. The only issue there is you're going to run out of ammo for that weapon pretty fast, but the trade-off might be well worth it if it's going to help you clear the room or get yourself out of a nasty jam. Now there's a couple other power-ups that aren't weapons that you can use that I wanted to briefly touch on as well. There's a shield that you can pick up that will have five spinning blades twirl around you. Most lesser humanoid enemies will get sliced and diced up by these things if they get too close to you, so this item is perfect for keeping the riffraff at bay. Just be careful around mechanical enemies like robots and tanks, though. The spinning blades won't do any damage to them, and the blades will be cast away, so you could effectively leave yourself defenseless if you aren't paying attention. There's a force field power-up that grants your character invincibility. Once the field is up, a green ring will circle around you, and most anything you touch will be vaporized. It doesn't last too terribly long, but I found this item is more useful if you use it to walk through a cluster of enemies instead of trying to use it strictly as a defensive item. This is especially true when your character dies and comes back to life. When this happens, you'll automatically have a force field around you, so you definitely want to take advantage of this little power feature it has and give yourself some breathing room before it wears off. There's also a sneaker power-up that makes you move faster around the arena, and that one's pretty self-explanatory. And the last power-up to mention is the Smart Bomb, or the Tactical Nuke, as I like to call it. This power-up will be in the form of a yellow bomb icon, and as soon as you touch it, all enemies on screen will be killed in a quick flash. 
Whenever you see one of these, you'll want to do everything you can to grab one of them if it's safe to do so. I think everything will be killed, with the exception of any mines that are lying on the ground, and there are some enemies that like to embed themselves in the walls and fire on you with machine guns. I think those bastards still live. But either way, always grab the bomb, if you can. So that's the quick and dirty when it comes to the tools that you're going to have at your disposal. The fun thing about the gameplay in Super Smash TV is that these power-ups won't always appear in the same spots or at the same times. It's random, and that really adds to the gameplay experience in my opinion. It is a pretty awesome feeling to see a spreader spawn right behind you as you're about to be overwhelmed or catch a glimpse of a smart bomb underneath a mob of lesser goons. Generally speaking, you'll always want to keep your gun firing at all times, but you actually have to be a little more careful if you have a special weapon equipped. In some other video games, special weapons will last for a specified amount of time, allowing you to go nuts with it until the timer runs out and you default back to your standard weapon. In other games, you have a special weapon on you and it's yours to keep until you die. The way it works in Super Smash TV, though, is your special weapons actually have a limited amount of ammunition. Your default behavior is probably going to be to keep your finger on the trigger at all times, but when you have a special weapon equipped, it might be wise to use a little restraint in some situations. A good example of this is when you have the rocket launcher weapon. It is very easy to blow your whole load in a few seconds flat, but remember, I mentioned that your rockets will fly through the lesser enemies and kill most mechanical ones in one hit. If you can time your rocket blasts and use some precision, you can make that single rocket last and maximize its killing potential. This will help you conserve ammo and you'll have much more use out of the rocket launcher in the long term. I will say though that overall I am not a huge fan of the idea that your special weapons have limited ammunition. We'll get into the chaos that ensues in your standard playthrough, but anytime I wasn't spraying a hail of bullets, I found myself getting quickly overwhelmed by enemies. And maybe that's the gimmick that they're going for. The developers maybe wanted to give you a little bit of breathing room when you had a special weapon, but they didn't really want it to last all that long, so there's always that pressure of being overwhelmed. I don't know, it just felt really weird to me overall, I guess. But no matter. The time has come for us to try our hand in the arena and see if we have what it takes to come out on top and with a boatload of prizes to boot. When we fire up the game and press the start button, we're given three options on the Super Nintendo version of Super Smash TV. We choose either one or two players and we also have our choice of difficulty options. It probably goes without saying, but playing this game with a friend is certainly the preferred way of playing this game. One of you will be blue guy and the other will be red guy, and you can take on the arenas together. As far as the difficulties go, you have three options, easy, normal, and hard. Personally, if this is your first time playing and you want to get used to how the game controls, I suggest the easy difficulty. The only bad thing is that the game will actually end after you complete the first stage, forcing you to start the whole game over, but it is a great way to get used to the game and get comfortable with the controls and all the power-ups that we just went over. But be warned, even though the difficulty is called easy, this game will be anything but. Normal mode is how the game was meant to be played, but if you're a masochist and love getting spanked for fun, you can try hard mode. 
In hard mode, I noticed enemies move faster, and they seem to take more damage before perishing. So only select that if you have a death wish, or you've become a master of the main difficulty. For our little trip into the arena, let's leave normal selected. Since it's going to just be us making our way through, let's select player 1. When we make our selection, the master of ceremonies of the show wishes us good luck. Good luck! Alright, and with that, the game is on. We're taken to the Smash TV stage where the crowd begins to cheer us on. Go! 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 From behind a podium at the back of the stage, our character makes his way to center stage and then off to the right where we head into the first area. The host of the show is cheering along with the audience and their chants start to pump us up for what lies ahead. Go! 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 When we get to the first area, we spot four goons in the room with us. They slap their baseball bats firmly in their hands. We can't see their pixelated faces, but I'm sure they're looking at us menacingly. After a short moment, the game gives us control, and it's on. Each room of the arena has a door on each wall. North, south, east, and west. As soon as we start moving our character around the screen using the directional pad, more enemies start pouring in from the south entrance. At least 11 more baseball bat-wielding assholes start making their way towards us. It's probably time we start defending ourselves, I'd say. Now, the original arcade version of Smash TV utilized two joysticks. The left one would be for movement, and the right one would be to shoot in whichever direction you lean the stick. Modern games use a control scheme like this and are often known as twin-stick shooters. Most controllers nowadays have two thumbsticks, which make this sort of control style pretty easy to manage. Now, on the Super Nintendo, the developers had to get creative. Obviously, there are no control sticks on the SNES controller, so movement was regulated to the directional pad, and then shooting had to be mapped to the four buttons. The X button at the top has you shoot towards the top of the screen, the B button has you shoot down, and so on and so forth. You can even press two buttons together, like the X and the A buttons, to shoot diagonally. So all that told, you can move and shoot in all eight directions, just like the arcade version. It's a pretty neat concept using the face buttons like this, but I will admit, for me, it took some getting used to. That's not to say the controls were bad or anything, I just had to rewire my brain since I've never played a twin-stick shooter this way before. Now that we know how to kill the bastards, we start moving around and taking our shots. These lesser goons go down in a single shot, so they aren't too much of a threat to start with. The thing that we're going to need to be careful about is their sheer numbers. It won't matter how well we shoot if the mob overwhelms us. All it's going to take is a single baseball bat to the chin, and we're down for the count. Yes, you heard that right. All it takes is one hit, and we are toast. We do start with several lives, though. At the top left-hand side of the screen, you can see a number. We start off with five on the standard difficulty, but we can get more. One-ups will sometimes appear in the play area as well, and they look like little images of the character's face. Obviously, grab these when you see them because they will give you an extra life. Just be careful that you don't waste lives going to get your extra one. Now, 
I could be wrong since the game is always so chaotic, but I think reaching certain high score milestones will also get you extra lives as well, but don't quote me on that. Even if it doesn't work that way, staying alive long enough to give yourself as high a score as possible is the name of the game. Your score is also at the top left hand side of the screen displayed on a counter that's actually part of the floor which you could walk over, which I thought was a pretty neat concept. As we continue to lay waste to our opponents, our score starts to climb. As we take out most of the goons in the arena, even more pour in from the north entrance. Money and bars of gold start to appear on the ground right about this time. As we move and shoot, we maneuver to pick them up. These items will add tons of points to our overall score. Just be cautious as the sheer amount of enemies on screen doesn't always mean grabbing the goods will be easy. You'll just have to decide if risking getting hit by something is worth the score boost or if just staying alive is good enough for now. In this case, we grab what we can and shove the money into our bottomless pockets. For a really big score boost, we need to keep an eye out for present boxes. These boxes contain the best score boosting prizes available. You can get fabulous prizes such as a sleek 1999 Roadster, a brand new VCR for those of you that remember what that is, Smash TV the Home Edition, or even a brand new state-of-the-art toaster. Prizes like these won't grant you a score bonus right away, but if you can survive the entire stage, you'll get a huge score boost based on how many you manage to pick up, so it's a great idea to grab them if you can. Ooh, speaking of, look, there's one right over there. Let's mosey over and grab that prize. Bingo! <sighs> As I've been talking, more and more enemies have started flooding into the arena. While our machine gun is doing an okay job keeping the mob at bay, we could really use a power-up right about now. Ah, over there. There's a shield power-up that just appeared. This is the one that will grant us those five spinning blades and can make very short work of the lesser assholes. We make our way over to it and pick it up. As we grab it, our character lets out a holler of excitement. Woo! All right, now we have five spinning blades making short work of the mob and giving us some valuable breathing room. Using this awesome toy and some well-placed machine gun fire, the enemies stop pouring in and we've secured the room. Alright, that was the easy part. From here, things are going to get tougher. After you complete the first room in a stage, a map of the entire area will slide on screen at the bottom left. It doesn't stay on screen for very long, so be sure to get a good look at it while you can. Might actually be a good idea to have a pen and paper handy too. On the map, you'll be able to see where you started and where the end boss is. Ultimately, to win the stage and progress to the exit, you'll need to find your way to the end boss and defeat it. Simple enough. However, on the map, there will be some rooms that are highlighted using a gold dollar sign. Those rooms are chock full of prizes and rewards, but those rooms are usually out of your way. You could just make a beeline towards the exit and stay efficient, but wouldn't it be worth risking all for a chance to bank more points? That's a decision you'll have to make on your own, but for now, we need to press on. After just a few seconds, the map disappears and on the floor, the word exit will pop up anywhere we can exit out of the room that we're in. In our case, we can only head east, so we do just that. 
As we enter the next room, the words, Meet Mr. Shrapnel, appear on screen. In the room, we face some new threats. First, there are a couple mines that are stuck to the floor. To my knowledge, you can't destroy these mines using any sort of weapon that you can grab. The only way that they'll disappear is if you decide to step on them and blow yourself up. You'll need to keep track of these mines as you move around the room and engage the enemy. Depending on where the mines are, your movement options can be severely impaired, so be extremely careful. If we take a look at the north wall, we'll see two enemies standing over a couple of balconies, and in front of them are a couple of machine gun turrets. These guys are going to be firing a burst of five or so bullets in your general direction, and will take several shots from your default machine gun to take out. This will require you to stand still and pump them full of lead until they perish, or if you're trying to stay mobile, you'll need to be accurate enough to shoot them while you're on the move. And with all the other enemies in the room that'll be coming after you, both options will be a challenge. But aside from the mines and the wall turret gunners, there's another new enemy all around you. At least seven of them for now. This new enemy type is called Mr. Shrapnel, and these guys fucking suck. On the surface, they look like versions of Dr. Robotnik. They're fat little dudes that wear red jumpers. They move very slow and take a lot of bullets to kill. While there are plenty of other dangerous enemies in this game, Mr. Shrapnel should not be underestimated. Usually what happens is this guy stays to the outer edges of the room. You'll more than likely lose track of him, especially if other fast-moving enemies are in the room with you. Mr. Shrapnel doesn't attack you while he's walking around, but the real danger comes when you leave him alone for too long. After a little bit, Mr. Shrapnel will start to shake, and eventually he'll explode, releasing metal shrapnel in all directions. Not only is this easy to miss if you're not paying visual attention, there is no audible indicator that Mr. Shrapnel has detonated. But the worst thing is, the shrapnel that goes flying is gray in color, which just happens to be the same color as most of the floors you'll be standing on. All that to say, it's very easy to lose track of these guys and get hit with flying shrapnel that you don't see coming. I cannot count how many times these enemies have killed me because I wasn't watching the room. I would be moving from side to side, laying waste to the opposition, and all of a sudden, wham, I would get struck. And then fall over dead. I would sigh heavily, and then my character would enter the room again so I could continue my killing spree. I don't exaggerate when I say that about half of the total times that I was killed was due to this enemy type right here. But I will say, I don't think any death that I suffered as a whole in this game could be considered a cheap death. Well, yeah, most of the time. Generally speaking, if I died, I usually screwed up in some capacity. When it comes to the Mr. Shrapnel enemies, if you can't get over to them and kill them before they explode, you need to make sure you keep your third eye on them and be mindful of when they do explode so you can move your character around their shrapnel accordingly. Super Smash TV and twin-stick shooters in general can be pretty chaotic and fairly difficult. 
There's a lot of things going on at once, and when you get a ton of enemies on screen, it can be hard to keep track of everything, especially if there's different enemy types on screen that can kill you with other methods besides touching you. While I consider myself an average gamer on my best day, I am certainly no twin-stick shooter expert. I find the key to survival is knowing when to move and knowing when to stay put. Generally speaking, if you remain mobile and constantly on the move, you're usually going to be in a position to either dodge incoming fire or put some distance between you and your enemy looking to lay hands on you. The problem that I personally find when moving is my eyes are usually on my character to make sure that I'm not running into any mines or other enemy obstacles or things like that. I tend to lose sight of what's around me, which is dangerous because bullets may be flying towards me or some other projectile is coming my way that I can't quite see. But on the other hand, if you take a moment to stand still and hold your ground, I tend to get more field of vision back and can take the time to check out the whole room since I'm not really worried about running into anything. It is great for situational awareness and taking stock of what's around you, so then the next move can be planned out. Is there a pile of money to your left, but there's a tactical nuke to your right? Can I grab them both based on the position of the enemies that are on the playing field? Standing still for a second is great for answering questions like this, and then going mobile to execute. Now this is my own personal experience, but in order to really get good at this kind of game and really come out on top, you need to be able to do both of these things very well. Better yet, be able to remain 100% mobile all of the time, and then be able to have that complete spatial awareness of the entire room. I'm sure I could get there one day, but that's going to require some practice, I'm sure. The only other bit of advice I think I can give is that you never want to back yourself into a corner, and you want to stay away from each of the four doorways into a room. The danger of putting yourself in a corner, I think, is fairly obvious. While it might make sense in the moment to try and funnel enemies towards you in order for you to take them out, you can still be overwhelmed if the sheer number of enemies is too great, so do not lull yourself into a false sense of security. Another thing I had to learn the hard way is staying away from the four entrances to the room. While you might find yourself hiding in corners, another thing you may do out of habit is circle the very outside of the room. I mean, in practice, this kind of makes sense. If you put your back to the wall, that's one less angle the enemy can get on you. But the drawback is that enemies will continuously pour into the room, and you will have no visual cue as to when this will happen. If you're circling around the room and happen to be by a doorway when a new wave of enemies come in, well, you're pretty well fucked. On paper, it sounds like this wouldn't happen all that often, but it sure as hell happened a lot to me. I would go so far as to say that after Mr. Shrapnel, doorway enemies killed me second most often. Really, you need to find a way to stay either in the middle of the room to afford yourself some mobility, or in the corners but just not too far into the corners, if that makes sense. Leverage special weapons when you find them, and just keep your eyes everywhere. Games like Super Smash TV can be pretty exhausting mentally, but once you hit that flow state, it is pretty awesome. 
After some practice with the controls and learning how best to tackle some of the situations that I found myself in, I found that I would die less and less often as I went. When everything was going right, it was hard not to have a smirk on my face. Yeah! Woo! Now that's not to say the game got any easier, I just got better. As you keep pushing through the levels, the difficulty will continue to ramp upwards. All it will take is one mistake, and you'll be history. While new enemy types will join the fray as you progress, such as tanks, floating orbs that shoot lasers, and clusters of balls that will swarm you in mere seconds, the true challenge of this game lies solely with the bosses at the end of each stage. I'd buy that for a dollar! Probably the most iconic boss in the entire game, and I'm assuming that's because of the fact that it's the boss of the very first level, is the Mutoid Man. This brick shithouse on tank treads can be a real challenge, especially if you're facing it for the very first time. If you've never seen this beast before, you should take a moment and Google him. The Mutoid Man is half man, half tank treads, and takes up a good portion of the room. While he's on tank treads, this creature can move forwards and backwards, but also, he can move side to side. I figured that out on accident when I stood next to him, and all of a sudden got ran over and turned into a fine paste. That was... that was lovely. That being said, you certainly do not want to try and get close to this guy. The Mutoid Man has two turret gunners stationed on the ends of his tank treads in the front that you'll need to contend with, but what makes him so much more dangerous is the lasers that he shoots from his eyes. The lasers fire pretty damn quick, so you have to make sure that you are constantly moving in order to avoid them. If you stop for just one second, you will get electrocuted. To complicate matters, there may be some mines on the floor in this area, so you'll need to watch your step. And several Mr. Shrapnels will show up just to make your life that much more painful. Oh, and if that weren't enough, your regular machine gun bullets will do no damage to Mr. Butoid Man and will bounce right off of him. You have to wait for special weapons to appear and hope you're in a good position to grab them before they disappear. Only with special weapons can you damage Mutoid Man, and holy shit can he take a ton of punishment. According to the gameplay footage that I recorded, it took me over five and a half minutes to beat this guy the first time I took him on. Five minutes of me walking in a circle, avoiding his laser blasts, waiting for a weapon to spawn, whittling away at him and repeating. I have to say, while the boss battles in general in this game are pretty okay, and a great way to break up the monotony that can potentially set in up to this point, I didn't really enjoy them as much as moving from room to room and just whacking waves of enemies. Five and a half minutes doesn't really seem that long, but in a game like this, that moves really quick, I felt like this hurt the pacing a bit, at least that's how I felt personally. The fight with the Mutoid Man was challenging for what it was, and I learned pretty quick that the best thing that I could do was stay behind him, as he couldn't turn his head around and zap me with his laser eyes, but the downfall there is that I was constantly backed against the north wall, so my mobility was limited. As you do more damage to the creature, he'll eventually show signs of damage. His arms will be blasted away, and then eventually his chest will be torn apart, revealing his ribcage. Haha, <laughs> sick! 
From there, you'll eventually blow his head off, and he'll have no way to attack you other than running you over. As a final act of desperation, destroying his upper torso somehow reveals another head that he was hiding somewhere that will start to shoot lasers at you again. It's funny, Mutoid Man loves to shout his disbelief at the player at this point. No way! All you need to do now is just keep your distance, stay behind him, and watch out for any Mr. Shrapnel enemies out there that might shit out some of those steel spikes towards you, and you're golden. With some practice, you can beat this enemy with not too much effort. The first time I took this beast on, I ripped through several of my continues. Now when I face him, I might lose three, maybe four lives at most. I'm sure I can certainly get better, but hey, improvement is an improvement. When you do finally beat him, you exit the stage right, and you're taken to the bonus screen. Any presents you picked up that contained stage-specific prizes like VCRs or toasters are tallied here. If you happen to be playing with a pal, both of your totals are compared. The one with the most points at the end of the stage is considered the winner of that stage, so it sort of creates a nice little cooperative, competitive element to the whole thing. But when you sit back and think about it, both of you are still alive, and that's a wonderful prize in and of itself, right? Now, once your bonuses are tallied and your scoreboard is inflated with your bounties, it's off to the next arena to do it all over again. The next stage has more rooms, the enemies are different, and the difficulty is increased. All told, that's pretty much the overall gameplay experience when it comes to Super Smash TV. You're going to be doing a lot of shooting, a lot of looting, and a hell of a lot of killing. Overall, the game is just fun at its core, and it goes all the way back to when I was talking about 80s movies with simple concepts at the beginning of the episode. Smash TV has a really interesting concept that it uses as a set piece to explain why you're doing what you're doing. And it's not really done as a gimmick, really. The cheering of the crowd, the stupidity of the prizes you win, and just the mere idea that you're on a game show is a concept enough to drive the player forward without putting you in a world that's completely bland. And I'm not really completely sure why this is, but more than anything, when I think back to my experience, I found myself playing over and over again to see if I could get a higher score than the last time I played. Now that sounds fairly normal to most people, I'm sure, but for me, I have not been, and really am not, a high score chaser. I think some of that comes from playing games where there was a score system in place, but the score never really mattered in the grand scheme of things. For example, take most Mario games, or at least the ones I've played. While you have a score in the upper left-hand side of the screen, I never really had an incentive to try and get the highest score possible. I mean, there's the idea of bragging rights, or just finding a way to do better than the last time you played, and maybe some score systems incorporate extra lives or other bonuses, but games like Mario for me were just about completing a level and maybe finding some secrets along the way. A score really meant nothing to me. In Super Smash TV, the score was directly tied to how well you performed, and the game makes it very important to stress this. When you finish each level and have your bonuses tallied, it's hard not to get a sense of pride when you see that final number. 
I may not have personally beat this game yet, but I enjoyed pushing and pushing for a higher score. It was directly tied to how well I did as a player, and I really appreciated this about the game. The only other thing I'll mention when it comes to Super Smash TV is that its overall presentation was fairly okay overall. The music on offer in this game is not all that memorable to me. The music that was playing earlier during the first level is probably the most memorable, but that's probably because you're going to be hearing it very often, being it's the first stage. And when I played my first stage through, it took me about 23-25 minutes, so this music will ingrain itself into your skull, I promise. It really isn't that bad overall, just not the greatest, but it does fit that overall game show theme pretty well, I will say. Outside of the music, I really thought the voiceovers that you hear were really well done. The host of the show, the MC, will pop on screen from time to time as you move from room to room, and he just fits that classic TV game show host role perfectly. He'll pop up on screen next to two of the ugliest pixelated bikini-clad babes ever and spout out some pretty awesome one-liners. I especially like it when you find a treasure room and he gets you amped up by saying, Big money! Big prizes! It all really solidified that game show feel for me. So as we wrap it all up, I don't think I have too much more to say about Super Smash TV. At its core, it has a very simple gameplay concept, and it's not a simple game, really. While most twin-stick shooters thrive on its chaotic gameplay, and I feel like there aren't too many that really embrace a theme or stick to an identity, Super Smash TV really tries to embrace the crazy, violent game show shtick, and does so believably. As I make my way through the pile of retro games out there, I'm finding I have a true appreciation for the games that are simple by definition, but have a gameplay loop that's both engaging and somewhat addicting. If it wasn't clear before, let me be crystal clear now. Super Smash TV is a hard game. You will die, and you will die often. But it's also a game that rewards you by sticking with it and getting good. And while I never had a chance to play the game with another person, I have to imagine this is one of those games that instantly becomes 100 times more engaging when you're blasting away enemies with someone sitting next to you in the living room. While beating this game is very possible, it will be extremely hard to get to the very end at first. And that's okay. The fun here lies with surviving as long as you can and racking up as high a score as possible. And just like a good 80s movie, Super Smash TV has quickly become a game that I'll be partaking in from time to time as I move forward. Every time I do play this game, I get just a little bit better, just a little bit farther. I've no doubt that one day, I'll be added to the wall of prestigious Super Smash TV's Grand Champions, and at that point, everyone will know my name. That's another one in the books. 
This has been episode 30 of the Retro Wildlands Super Smash TV. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. I really enjoyed having you with us on the expedition. This game was certainly one that I had a pretty good time with, and it's one that I'm sure I'll be going back to from time to time. I'll never get tired of a video game that takes a premise and keeps it simple and engaging. I was never really the type of person to chase high scores or seek out the top spots on the leaderboards, but Super Smash TV's gameplay makes it hard not to want to keep reaching for the top. And I'm sure this game would have been even better with a pal to play it with, so maybe one day I'll get the privilege. More than anything, there's just something about a game where the only thing you need to do is shoot everything that moves and collect loot. Games like this will always have a special place in my heart. If you like the show and want to show it and myself some support, please consider leaving a good review on your preferred podcasting platform if you can. Good reviews will help get the podcast more exposure and help it pop up in more searches and feeds. Also consider following or subscribing to the show as well. This way you'll get notified as soon as new content drops. You can also link up with us over on social media as well. You can find the Retro Wildlands over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube if you search at Retro Wildlands. Join us over there to get the latest on the show itself and just as a way to add more gaming goodness to your timelines and feeds. Plus, another way to support us would be to interact with us over on social. Likes and shares are just as helpful as spreading the word is, but more than that, I love interacting with people on our channels, so please join us if that's something that interests you. And if you really want to help spread the word about the podcast, please consider telling your friends, family, co-workers, or even random strangers about the show. Valentine's Day might be over, but nothing says I love you, and nothing is more romantic than checking out the retro wildlands with a loved one. So what's coming up on our next episode? We will be talking about Parasite Eve 2 on the Sony PlayStation. I covered the original Parasite Eve on our very second episode of the Retro Wildlands, and I am very excited to cover the sequel. While the Parasite Eve franchise is pretty much dead at this point, I've always had an appreciation for it, even if the series seemed to spiral out of control as time went on. Parasite Eve 2 has always been an interesting game for me personally, too. While it's not quite the original experience, there's enough here that I find it fun and engaging, but at the same time, there's some things that really make me scratch my head. I might have said it before, but I have a love-hate relationship with PE2, but it's always a game that I seem to keep coming back to. I've probably completed the game over a dozen times since I played it when I was a kid, so I'm pretty eager to talk about it. I am also curious what you all think about it too. So be sure to tune in next time as we rejoin Aya Brea and accompany her on her next mission to save the world. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. Retro Wildlands.